Welcome to The Fundamentals, a podcast focused on the incredible research and researchers at Michigan Medicine. I'm your host, Kelly Malcolm. And I'm Jordan Gobig. The opioid epidemic, fueled by both prescribed and illicit versions of the drugs, has wrecked havoc on this country. But figuring out how to help people who are in pain or who have use disorders is a complex issue. Our next guest gave me a new and deeper perspective on the opioid crisis. Absolutely, and she won't be our only guest covering this general theme this season, but I did appreciate having a perspective from a chemist and then getting one from a more clinical side and also learning about the resources and collaborations happening at the university to address the opioid crisis. This week, I found a recent article from Michigan Medicine about a statewide effort to treat the pain of surgery patients that led to a drop in opioid prescriptions and refills that I thought was interesting. Our guest also talks about health disparities and disparities in access to care. Another unfortunate example of this is a recent study that found that living in an under-resourced neighborhood may affect a person's recovery from surgery, even if their operation takes place at a high-quality hospital. For folks that want to know more about these topics, we have a significant amount of research stories written about them, as well as a number of collaborative projects going on. We'll make sure to provide links to the show notes. Now let's get on to our guest. Today's guest is Dr. Pooja Lagasetti, an assistant professor of internal medicine and a research scientist at the Center for Clinical Management and Research at the Ann Arbor VA. Her research focuses on addressing access barriers and developing multidisciplinary interventions to better treat chronic pain and addiction across general medical settings. Her research has been influential in understanding stigma and disparities for individuals with pain and addiction. Specifically, her work has highlighted treatment access barriers for individuals with chronic pain following policies aimed at reducing prescription opioid supply and racial disparities in the receipt of medications for opioid use disorder. Welcome, Dr. Lagasetti. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you today, and we are ready to just kind of jump right into things and get to know you a little bit better. So I'm going to kick us off with just a hopefully not too not too tough of a question, but I'd love to learn a little bit more about what point in your career um, you started to focus on chronic pain and addiction, um, and where did the passion for these topics come from? Yeah, I think when I think back at where my interest first was sparked, I would probably say it was during residency. I did my residency training in Boston and Massachusetts, and um, my outpatient clinic, so I'm a primary care physician, uh, my outpatient clinic was in Charlestown, which is a you know a little neighborhood of Boston um, of largely working class individuals. And this neighborhood had really been struck hard by the prescription opioid epidemic um, during the time of my training. And I was really fortunate to have preceptors who were, I guess, you know, ahead of the game and already providing medications for opioid use disorder in general medical settings and started to train me on treating patients with addiction in general medical settings. Um, And I think at that point, I became interested and... um, didn't realize that it would become, you know, my life path from a work perspective quite yet. But I do, I, you know, I give I give those preceptors credit for inspiring me. Really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. So how has the opioid epidemic changed how you and your colleagues practice medicine? Uh, it might even be helpful to kind of define when the 
opioid epidemic began, if there is such a definition, and what kind of effects it's had on practice? You know, I will say people have used opioids for centuries. <laughs> um, and, be, you know, when we think about the opioid epidemic in America, I think a lot of people really start to think about it beginning closer to the early 2000s. Um, when we started to see the rise in prescription opioid-related overdoses. Um, not to say that there wasn't a lot of non-prescribed opioid use happening in the 70s and the 80s and even before the 70s. Um, but that's when the opioid epidemic really, one, kind of reached national attention. Um, and two, it really started to affect our healthcare system because, as you can imagine, before the 2000s and before the prescription opioid epidemic in general, a lot of the opioids that people were using were non-prescribed, right? So they were, you know, illicit market, you know, opioids. And so it wasn't necessarily something that you as a doctor had to deal with um, or the healthcare system felt like was a medical condition that they had to deal with. And so... I would say since the 2000s, there's been this kind of growing realization that uh, that addiction is something that is something to be treated in the healthcare system. And so, does that now affect how you prescribe? What I'm wondering how things got kicked off. So, was there a new drug that entered the market? Really, what triggered the medicalization of opioid use? Yeah, good question. I think it's multifactorial. So like I said, you know, in the 2000s, we started to prescribe a lot of prescription opioids. And that was the first time I think people started to think about opioids being kind of a medical therapeutic option. And, you know, we probably don't have the time to go into kind of how the pharmaceutical industry promoted opioids at that time. Um, but clearly they were promoted as a safe option for the treatment of pain. And, you know, as physicians started to believe that narrative, their use really um, expanded and they were marketed heavily to patients as well. Um, and there were a lot of factors that went into things at the same time. It, you know, it, pain also became kind of considered a vital sign. We would ask patients every time they came into the hospital or clinic how bad your pain is. And we started to be, recognize pain as a treatment option. But I think before we even go there from like the medicalization, so that's the medicalization of prescribed opioids, and that was what really garnered attention. Um, but like I said, opioids always existed. Um, so illicit opioids, you know, were always on the market um, in the form of other, you know, whether that was heroin back in the day and whether that's fentanyl today. Those opioids were always there. It was just, like I said, kind of considered something that people did recreationally on their own time and not necessarily, it was almost considered a vice or something bad that people did and not something that needed to be treated by doctors. But when we started to use opioids to treat pain um, in that very different medical context of around the idea of pain, then we started to think, oh, well, maybe this is this is a doctor problem, um, and this is something that needs to happen in the healthcare system. However, with that said, we are still doing a good job treating pain in the healthcare system and using kind of opioids for the treatment of pain, um, although that's getting harder and harder too. Um, but we still don't, I, I wouldn't say that the healthcare system has embraced treating opioid use disorder or addiction. Um, and so the medications that we use to treat opioid use disorder are still you know, very rarely used in the healthcare system. 
Um, and it's hard for us to convince doctors into providing that treatment, no matter what we've done with respect to policies. So when we think about the word opioid, it's so broad and diverse. Um, so some things have been really treated in the healthcare system for a while, specifically pain, um, and other situations like addiction. You know, we're we're trying our best to convince um, our healthcare providers to embrace the treatment of addiction within the healthcare system. Um, so one of the words that you've used several times is opioid use disorder, which I had honestly never even heard of. Um, I will, I'm ignorant on this topic in terms of I've definitely consumed a lot of popular culture media related to opioid use. Maybe watched a popular Hulu series not too long <laughs> ago. Um, like I remember watching Intervention when I was in high school and things like that. But I really don't know a lot about it. I had never heard this term before. Um, so I would love to hear from you. Um, how, how do you define chronic pain versus opioid use disorder? And, and what does that mean? Yeah. So remember, opioids is the drug class, right? It's a type of drug. And that drug can be used for a variety of reasons, um, similar to alcohol, right? Like we can use it to, you know, increase our, you know, our ability to be social, decrease our anxiety, um, make us feel good. Maybe we just like the flavor of it. Um, you know, we can use that drug for a variety of reasons. Sometimes alcohol is even used medicinally, right, historically as well. Um, and so opioids similarly can be used for a lot of reasons. Socially, you know, make they make us a little bit more social. They relax us. They can also treat pain. Um, they can help people go to sleep. They can do all kinds of things. And so opioids within the medical context have been used to treat chronic pain or pain, acute pain, right? After surgery, you can get some pills. Chronic pain is basically pain that's lasted more than 90 days. Um, and so that becomes the chronic aspect of it. You know, and you can use those opioids to treat your pain all day long and not have what we would define as an opioid use disorder. Um, and so an opioid use disorder, I think the easiest way to think about it is when the opioids start to affect your ability to function and your roles and responsibilities, right? So if it's affecting your ability to hang out with your kids, it's affecting your ability or driving dangerously, um, if it's something that you're craving all the time or you're thinking about all the time, then you have an opioid use disorder. And that's just a big fancy medical word for addiction. Um, but if you're just physically taking that opioid for a long period of time and it's not negatively impacting your roles and responsibilities, you don't have an opioid use disorder. You know, a lot of people have been on prescribed opioids, let's say, for 10 years by their doc. And they don't necessarily have an opioid use disorder unless it's affecting their ability to function in their daily life. I really appreciate that. I actually, I had a C-section, an emergency C-section when I gave birth, and I was offered pain medication when I was leaving the hospital, and I declined because I I really did. Like, I feel so stupid now, but I, and it was fine. Like, I'm fine. I recovered. But I remember declining anything, like, stronger than Tylenol because I just got so nervous, like, I mean, I know my doctor knows best, but I just like, I can do this. And I didn't know what a C-section recovery was going to be like. And I'm fine again, but it's good to hear those things from you because I feel like I didn't really advocate for my pain um, after my surgery because I was really nervous that I was like going to get something and it was going to impact me in some negative way. And I just didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I should have just listened to my doctor who hadn't just <laughs> had an emergency C-section. And again, I'm fine. Baby's fine. But 
um, it did kind of keep me, I feel like, from advocating for myself and seeking treatment that might have just kind of helped because um, having a kid's really tough right <laughs> after, especially. Um, so I really appreciate that. Um, and I, I think this hopefully segues a bit into my next question, which um, what sort of barriers do individuals with chronic pain face when they are trying to receive care and treatment? I know that's an area that you've done a lot of research on. Yeah. You know, I think going back to this idea of like intersectionality of what opioids do, um, I always try to explain kind of the backstory here, which is there's a lot of stigma attached to opioids now. Um, You know, opioid phobia, I guess you could, you know, use if you wanted to use that term. But um, an opioid phobia, you know, in some ways is rightful, right? (laughs) Like, you know, this one drug has thrown us into a major epidemic. And there should be, you know, a reasonable fear around it because, you know, as we just discussed, there are some people that obviously can take that medication you know, for acute, you know, a C-section and do just fine. Take it for a few days and be okay. There's other people that take it long-term for many years and also are still theoretically okay. Um, And then there's others who, you know, where the medication can really cause a, you know, an opioid use disorder. And I think the trouble here is that for doctors and for anyone, honestly, Um, figuring out where a person's going to land on that spectrum when they take that medication is is really, really difficult. Um, Like we can create like risk factors and risk scores to try to figure out who is going to, you know, be just fine and who's not going to be fine. But, you know, none of that really works out that well. And so that has created a lot of fear around the medication in general, right? So if I see a patient who's just had a C-section and maybe has some pain, Um, you know, I'm thinking to myself as a doctor, like, can I give this patient, you know, some medication to help with their pain? And how do I reasonably give them this medication and not start what could be, you know, 10 years of potential physical dependence on the medication or an opioid use disorder? And so with that said, a lot of doctors um, and clinicians in general are just saying like, well, if the medication is so dangerous, you know, or has this danger potential, then I'm just not going to give it at all. Um, And so, you know, you guys fooled me. You told me it was safe (laughs) a few years ago. I gave it to everybody. And now I'm just like, you know, I'm saying no, and I'm not going to do it. Um, And so a lot of docs have gotten to the point where they're just closing their doors. They're closing their doors because they're fearful of the drug. Um, They're also closing their doors because there's a lot of administrative, like, bureaucracy tied to it now. So, like, when I prescribe a patient an opioid, I have to check the prescription drug monitoring program, which is a computer login to see if they've gotten prescriptions at other pharmacies. Um, I have to, you know, give them a contract that says that they understand the risk versus benefits of taking that medication. I have to demonstrate in my note that I have an established relationship with the patient, that I've described all of these things. And then on top of it, I can write that prescription for less than seven days with some regulations in the state of Michigan. Or if I write them a 30-day prescription, then the moment those 30 days are over, I have to go through that whole process all over again. And all of that takes a lot of time. And so imagine if you're, you know, a clinic that's taking care of two or 3,000 patients and, you know, a few hundred are on opioids. That's a lot of time going to writing and prescribing this medication. So what a lot of clinics are doing now is saying, well, you know, if you're already on the opioid and we started it, sure, we'll keep treating you. 
Um, but if you're coming from another clinic, then we're not going to take you because we don't want to add to our pool of all of these kind of administrative hurdles. Well, you know, imagine you're a patient and your doc, you know, you've been on this medication for 10 years and your doctor retired or your doctor moved to another city. And now what? You know, I have studies that have shown that, you know, roughly 40% of clinics will take on a new patient who is requiring opioids for long-term pain. And so that means, you know, 60% of the phone calls that you're making to these clinics, they're saying no. They're not even letting you walk in the door. And that 40% number is just to see you in clinic. It doesn't mean that the doc's actually going to prescribe it for you. Um, And so it's becoming increasingly challenging to find a doctor who's willing to kind of, you know, start and or carry on prescriptions for pain because there is, you know, like I said, reasonable fear around the medication. But perhaps, you know, the pendulum swung too far in some ways and it's, you know, making it difficult to find the treatments that patients probably do need. So an extension of this is that you do work in health inequity um, and how these different types of barriers impact different populations. Could you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah. So, you know, what we do know historically is that when people were wanting opioids for pain or for pain treatment, we know that in general, um, white populations are more likely to receive that opioid, whether that be in the emergency room whether that be after a surgical procedure, et cetera. We have historically provided white individuals better pain treatment. Um, and so opioids, in some ways, you know, disproportionately, um, the prescription opioid epidemic disproportionately affected white individuals. Now, some people could say, oh, well, that was kind of, is this like a reverse disparity, right? Like, did, did that benefit black individuals because we didn't give them opioids at that time, at least in the form of prescription opioids? Well, um, you know, I would argue treating somebody inequitably for their pain or inadequately treating their pain is is never a positive disparity. Um, so even if they didn't get the an opioid, they were inadequately treated for their pain, which was you know, equally wrong. But now what's happening, unfortunately, is that as the prescription opioid epidemic, you know, not that it doesn't exist anymore, but now what we're seeing with respect to overdoses is largely synthetic opioids, which are fentanyl derivatives. And we're finding that the rate of overdoses is actually now disproportionately affecting black and brown individuals rather than white individuals, which was not true during the prescription opioid epidemic. So I guess you could kind of say that the face of the epidemic is shifting. Um, And what's unfortunate is now there are three medications that are evidence-based to treat opioid use disorder, buprenorphine, methadone, and naltrexone. Two of those medications are opioids themselves, buprenorphine and methadone. Methadone, you have to go to an outpatient treatment program, so a very specialized clinic, pick up your methadone dose every day, and those clinics only exist in certain communities. Buprenorphine, on the other hand, can be prescribed similar to oxycodone or Percocet or all these other opioids that we use for pain. Um, But what we're finding or what our studies have shown, including ones by my team, is that this one medication that can theoretically be picked up at any clinic, right, any primary care clinic, any emergency room, um, and could be a life-saving medication, is now disproportionately only going to white individuals. 
And so even though the face of the epidemic has shifted, we're now finding that, you know, a similar pattern to the full agonist opioids that we, that clinicians are giving this medication mainly um, to white individuals. So even as the, you know, epidemic kind of shifts, we're now seeing treatment disparities, um, specifically around buprenorphine. Those disparities are not always true in other medications. So methadone, on the other hand, like I said, which happens in specialty treatment programs, a lot of methadone clinics are largely located in urban environments that have historically been largely minority neighborhoods. And so um, we don't necessarily see the same kind of disparity shake out with methadone. But again, the reason that there's so much interest in the disparity around buprenorphine is that this one medication has the potential to be in every person's neighborhood, irrespective of where you live. And so, you know, if there's one medication that has the ability to treat individuals across um, regions and race, it's theoretically buprenorphine. There's a um, a researcher named Helena Hansen, um, who's really done a lot of great anthropology research on this topic. And she even talks about how when buprenorphine was initially marketed um, and when laws initially kind of came out to um, allow the use of buprenorphine in non-specialty settings, which there was a law in 2000 called Data 2000 that allowed this. It was, it was even advertised to Congress as a drug to largely treat like suburban patients, which was, you know, code word for white, well-off patients. Um, And even a lot of the pharmaceutical marketing was largely to prescribers that were living in suburban environments. And so some of these disparities are probably, you know, deeply rooted in, in even the way the medication was initially legally passed. This sounds like a very complex (laughs) issue. Um, You have populations with untreated pain. You have populations who had their pain treated but then developed a problem. What are people to do? So if you have pain and it's the type of pain that's just not touched by Advil or anything else that you would turn to normally, can you realistically go to your primary care physician and have them prescribe you an opioid? Does it depend on who you are? (laughs) And then how would a patient know if they have a a problem? Like how how do you know if you have opioid use disorder? Mm -hmm. Is it kind of self-evident? Do those people go and seek treatment at their primary care physicians? Or is it maybe driven by the legal system or a caregiver, what kind of insight do you have about, you know, interacting with your doctors once you have a problem? Yeah, tough question. So a couple of things. So I think it's important to understand kind of semantics here of like, you know, your first question was how do you go and get treatment for pain, um, which I think is different than how do you go and get treatment for when you have a problem. Um, which would be the opioid use disorder, because I think those treatment landscapes are very different. Um, and the disparities and the access barriers are different for each of those scenarios. Even though it's a, you know same opioid umbrella, um, those treatment landscapes are different. So now for the question around for treatment of pain and when Advil and Tylenol and all these non-opioid um, therapeutic options don't work, 
what what do you do? <laughs> um, and you know the the CDC and you know a lot of agencies are you know appropriately saying that at this point what we do know about pain is that it's complex and that the ideal way to be treating pain is probably multimodal treatment. And what do I mean by that? That means that you should probably be getting physical therapy, that you should, you know, be given access to things like acupuncture or chiropractors, that you should potentially receive cognitive behavioral therapy or, you know, some type of behavioral therapy to help manage the your way of coping with pain. Um, in addition to potentially receiving medications or procedural interventions like injections and things like that. Now, all of those things that I just described to you are not easy <laughs> to access um, in most environments. Um, and so, you know, insurers are working you know, their hardest to figure out ways to um, reimburse for this kind of this ideal multimodal treatment. But as you can imagine, this is tough. It's tough for the average person to access all of the above. And, you know, even if you could access all of the above, like how do you get time off from work to go to physical therapy and your acupuncturist and and your behavioral therapy all to treat your pain? Um, And so there's just a lot of barriers there. With respect to, like, if we were to take all of that's the gold standard, but now if we were just talking about medications (laughs) um, and whether or not you could find somebody to give you an opioid, I think, you know, your doctor would probably have a reasonable discussion with you about the risk versus benefits of getting that opioid and also a reasonable discussion about what the efficacy would be long term. And so what we do know is that opioids are fine if they're taken in short courses and for acute scenarios. It's when you're taking it for, you know, the back pain that you've had for 10 years that it gets tricky because, you know, if you start that opioid, you know, the chance that your back pain will go away is really low. And so are you kind of signing yourself up potentially to be on that medication for a very long period of time? And then with that, absorbing all the side effects of that medication. And so that that's the part that gets really tricky. So I, I think a lot of docs are willing to give the medication for the acute scenario when they know they have an exit plan. But it's for the patients that don't necessarily have a condition that's going away anytime soon where everybody starts to get a little uncomfortable. Right. And then the other group, um, I know that Narcan mm-hmm. was just recently approved for over-the-counter use which sounds like really a really big deal. Um, what does that really mean for people with opioid use disorder? Yeah, so Narcan's an interesting drug, right? So Narcan is an opioid antagonist, so it reverses the effects of opioids, particularly in the setting of an acute overdose. And so this means that, you know, if you and I witnessed an overdose in a bathroom, we could use Narcan often intranasally, and reverse that overdose and save lives. And we know that Narcan saves lives. And so over the past few years, we've done a lot of work around harm reduction to get you know, Narcan in everyone's hand, particularly first responders. And we're also prescribing Narcan uh, when patients come into the hospital for procedures or if they're taking long-term opioids, we'll, we'll give them Narcan in case they have an accidental overdose. Now, with that said, a bystander has to give it to you, right? Like if you're having an overdose and you're by yourself, you can't administer your own Narcan. And so what's recently happened is, you know, like you mentioned, there's been a push for Narcan to be over the counter. And this would theoretically 
um, has the potential to improve access to Narcan because it used to be that it was largely kind of distributed through grant funds or through first responders or through a prescription. Um, and so now, you know, if it becomes widely, you know, over the counter, you could go to any Walgreens or CVS and pick up some Narcan. Now, the big question is how much will this cost? <laughs> um, and not only how much will it cost over the counter, but will it still be covered by insurance, right? And so, you know, the example that as like, you know, primary care physician that I can use is like Prilosec, right? It used to be a prescription medication. If you had insurance, it was covered by that insurance. But now if you go to like Walgreens to pick up a box of Prilosec, you might be paying 10 to 20 bucks for 20 Prilosec, which is more expensive than you were paying when it was covered by insurance. Um, and so there's a lot of unanswered questions around the Narcan over the counter. I think it has a lot of great potential here, um, but so much is going to depend on pricing and what the insurance companies are going to do now that it's revealed, and also stocking. Um, you know, not all pharmacies are stocked equally. You know, we've learned that even with buprenorphine, that some pharmacies carry the bare minimum. Um, and so a lot of patients can't access buprenorphine even at the pharmacy, you know, whether that's because they have a, a policy about how much they can stock or whether it's because, you know, they are, you know, truly just trying to restrict that patient population from coming into their clinic. And so I think with the Narcan, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how pharmacies approach stocking it um, and how much kind of pressure we can put on all pharmacies to keep it stocked. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify. So if you you feel like you have opioid use disorder or a loved one has opioid use disorder, really what is the first step to getting help? <laughs> Great question. You know, I uh, you know, addiction has historically an opioid use disorder has, you know, historically been treated in the community in the healthcare setting, you name it, lots of places, right? Um and what we are trying to do is make it so that if you showed up into an emergency room and you had an opioid use disorder, you could get treatment. I will say at Michigan Medicine, that is true um, as of the last couple of years. So if you showed up at the emergency room, you have an opioid use disorder, they could start you on buprenorphine um, or methadone, and you would be seen by an addiction consultation team to get you hooked up to care, which is like amazing, but not true at every emergency room. Primary care clinics, you know, historically docs used to have to have what we called an X waiver. So they'd have to go through eight hours of treatment or if they were an um, advanced practice provider, 24 hours of treatment in order to prescribe buprenorphine. In the past year, that policy has also changed. And so there's no longer a special waiver to prescribe buprenorphine. So now any doctor could give you that medication. The problem is a lot of doctors are still not giving that medication because they say that they don't feel comfortable prescribing it. Well, they probably don't feel comfortable prescribing it because for years the drug was made to be a special medication that you required eight hours of training. Um, and I talk to docs about this a lot and I do a lot of training around this. I always kind of remind them that, you know, for in, in medicine in general, we use a lot of drugs that are brand new, 
um, that we don't get special eight hours of training for every time they're released. You know, often we, you know, somebody kind of tells us how to use it or we look it up on online resources and we, you know, figure out how to do it. Um, And so we kind of figure it out. But this medication has been made so special um, that it's made doctors feel, you know, or clinicians and general prescribers um, feel nervous about using it. And so a lot of efforts being put into training um, prescribers to feel comfortable uh, to use this medication so that you could theoretically walk into any clinic and be offered this medication. Um, and then, you know, a lot of times patients aren't ready for medications, right? Like there's just three drugs. They're good. They're not awesome. Um, and sometimes you're just not ready to stop, right? And, and in that situation, that's when like harm reduction approaches such as Narcan, such as, you know, safe syringes, um, you know, such as fentanyl test strips. Like there's all kinds of other options that are there for, for people who want to keep using opioids, but we just want to help them use them more safely. My head is spinning in the best way. I feel like <laughs> I've learned so much. I really appreciate this. Um, and just going through everything and explaining things. And like I said, I didn't have a lot of a background in any of this. And I, I feel like I, I've learned so much and um, have a lot of feelings about all these barriers. <laughs> and like the, like I under, I understand that there's systemic things at play, but I think you, you were telling that story and I'm like, she's going to bring up insurance about Narcan. I'm like, oh, I could feel it coming. I'm like, oh, our systems are so frustrating. Um, but it's it's great. It's a lot to think about um, and kind of just, you know, now transitioning into like, you know, what you're doing in, in the future of this research in this field. Um, are there any specific projects you're working on right now or any collaborators at Michigan Medicine that are just doing some really incredible things in this area that you would like to highlight? Yeah, thanks for asking. I mean, I will say that I can still consider myself a relatively junior researcher and am incredibly grateful that I've had amazing mentorship um, here at Michigan and collaborators. Um, you know, I, when I think about, you know, my primary mentor is Amy Bonnert, um, who's done some, you know, incredible work in this space. Uh, but I've also worked with, you know, the Michigan Opioid Prescribing Engagement Network, you know, individuals like Chad Brummett and Mark Bickett. Um, you know, I'm now starting to work a lot with some palliative care and pain physicians. And, um, and you know, the, the list can go on um, in including, you know, Dan Claw has been there for me as well. And so there's just a lot of great researchers that are doing work in this space from all kinds of aspects, whether that be um, kind of the work that I'm doing, which is, you know, a little bit more kind of stigma and access uh, related versus thinking about better therapeutic options. I mean, three drugs to treat a major problem seems really kind of sad, right? And so we we need more therapeutic options as well. There's also great kind of psychologists and psychiatrists that work in this space as well, thinking about behavioral approaches um, to treating treating addiction. And so there's just, there's a lot of great work happening at Michigan from all kinds of, you know, viewpoints. Um, You know, a lot of the work that, you know, researchers and collaborators I'd love to, you know, continue to get to know or, you know, sociologists and anthropologists who are really thinking about this from a cultural perspective because I feel like stigma is something that really has to be understood from um, kind of an, a cultural um, approach. Um, I'd also love to work with, you know, more policy wonks, you know, whether that be, you know, people at the School of Law or, you know, whatnot to just understand those approaches Um 
but there's so many ways to combine research, you know. Is there a way for us to think about stigma and access, but also, you know, think about it from a, you know, translational therapeutic approach? Um, and what's great about the opioid research community at Michigan um, is that it's really large. Um, I know before we started this podcast, I was just talking about how I randomly met a neighbor that was doing opioid law policy, right? And so um, I just think that there's there's so many people here that, you know, what's great is that the institution's investing. They're creating an opioid kind of almost kind of like a think tank initiative to really uh, make sure that um, that all of us are connecting, all the researchers are connecting, and that we have kind of a unified um, place to go for resources and also a way for us to interact better with the community um, to provide kind of more community-based participatory research and also, you know, working with the state as the state kind of works with state, state opioid response funds. U of M has a really deep bench when it comes to opioid research, which is great. And it makes me feel like we can tackle this epidemic and looking to the future. I mean, theoretically, the opioid epidemic will end at some point. I know it's still ongoing and the face has kind of changed and the types of opioids that we're dealing with are slightly different. Do you see it ending and how do you see it ending? Because I know you do some research as into educating the next generation of clinicians and having them think about this problem differently. How do, how do you see us getting to a better state? Yeah, I, I think I, I want to remind everyone that opioids have existed for centuries, right? And, and so when we talk about the epidemic ending, what we're talking about is a disproportionate rise in overdoses ending, Right, and so people dying from using opioids at a really high rate. Um, not that opioids will be like out of our supply, right? It, you know, I think that's one of the things that got tricky with the opioid ep- epidemic in general. Right, it was when it was a prescription opioid epidemic, it was kind of like, well, let's just stop prescribing it. If we just take opioids out of the pool, um, the opioid epidemic will go away. Well, clearly that didn't pan out. A lot There's a lot less prescription opioids um, in kind of our supply, and we're still dealing with higher rates of overdose than we did five years ago. Um, and that's because the opioid supply has changed, um, and we're now we're dealing with super potent uh, opioids such as fentanyl. And so when I think about the opioid epidemic ending – I don't think that we will be in a state where there are no opioids, right? People will be using opioids, whether that be recreationally or whether that be for pain or whether, you know, for whatever reason. But what we could have is better systems in place so that um, so that people are not using that medication to a point that makes it dangerous for them. Whether that be we have more harm reduction approaches available in the community, um, you know, there's some countries that have safe injection sites, right, for people who are using opioids. Um, whether that be, you know, better education for clinicians to provide treatments, um, whether that be more kind of community-based resources to improve the social determinants that are often linked to addiction, whether that be, you know, improving housing, improving access to food, uh, improving, you know, access to, you know, care when it's, you know, multi-generational, sorry, you know, multi-generations of addiction in your household, right? Like there's going to be, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that has to come into play. 
But I think the things that will kind of end, you know, what I would say this disproportionate rise of overdoses is largely going to not just be something we can do in the health system. It's not going to be something I can do as a doc. Um, but it's probably going to be something that we can do kind of with a bigger community public health approach um, that really rec- recognizes social determinants of addiction and pain because both of those things are interrelated um, and also improves access to therapeutics. And I think a great kind of historical example of a treatment like this was HIV. You know, it was similarly stigmatized. Um it was similarly dangerous, and with a lot of great policies, a lot of great community organization, and a lot of great scientific advancement with respect to therapeutics, we've now turned what was you know, a very deadly pandemic with HIV um, into a chronic illness that people can live with safely. Dr. Lagasetti, you were in my head because I was like, I don't know if we have enough time, but I kind of want to ask her if she has an example. I swear, (laughs) I was thinking, I was like, I'd just love to hear if there is anything, but maybe that's a stupid question. Um, And you answered it on your own and very succinctly without me having to ask it and like bumble around. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate you and your time and coming here and explaining these concepts to us. And I think that both our Michigan researchers and honestly, a lay audience is really going to... Um, appreciate hearing all of this information because I certainly did. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And we hope to find better ways to drop some of these access barriers and appreciate you doing all of this really important work. Thanks for listening. The Fundamentals is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network and produced by the Michigan Medicine Department of Communication in partnership with the University of Michigan Medical School. Find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.